data, okay? You know, people want to make data-based decisions. But I'm gonna ask you a question. I, I, you know, this is uh, an unprepped question. This is, you know, turning the tables on the interviewer, of course. But I'm gonna ask you a question. How much data do you have to collect and analyze in order to absolutely guarantee with certainty an outcome? Well, we're a data science company, so we've got the regression analysis down pat and all that, right? And there is statistical yeah. relevancy. I took three years of it, but I can't really yeah. point to a specific number. And it's never okay. the same, right? So a lot of it is just enough. So which is some enough. qualitative that, you know, thing, that's, right? That's a, that's, a great, that's a great answer, enough. Yeah. Because you know what? We are going to make our decisions when our level of confidence exceeds yeah. our level of fear. Time for another episode of the Cold Star Project. I am here with Joseph Paris. Uh, he goes by JP, Operational Excellence uh, Expert, which is a term that I think will mean something different to you uh, than what you first think. So he is uh, the founder of a company called Zonatech and the host of a couple podcasts, State of Readiness and The Outliers In. Thanks for being here. It's a great pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jason. You bet. So, you're an operational excellence guy. This is a space podcast. What are you doing on here? <laughs> I, I wanted you on because space needs operational excellence. It's, a, it's it, you know, there's a new space thing going on. There's a lot of people in the space industry now who are new to it. Um, Cold Star is fairly new to space. And so you've written this book, which I'm going to put on camera here, <laughs> State of Readiness. That phrase means something different uh, than, than I thought it did initially. It's a continuous place to be, and you have to work at it. It's not a, okay, we're done now sort of thing. So, And, and I really like this book. Uh, I think people should uh, go out and, and buy it and read it and that. So what does OPEX mean to you? It's obviously not Lean Six Sigma TQM or you know the Toyota production system. It's... Um it was a journey to come up with this definition and, and my notion of operational excellence. And I'll just give you a brief story. I was at a conference, uh, you know, early 2000s, maybe 2003, and uh, it was an industrial engineering conference. And uh, the subject of operational excellence uh, came up. And most people were thinking of it as a rebranding of Lean and Six Sigma and continuous improvement. And I said, you know, it's got to be something more than that, because uh, otherwise, why do we just need a new name? And, uh, and so I was like, you know, user number five on LinkedIn. I'm a very early adopter of LinkedIn. I never knew it was going to be the juggernaut it is today. And when I got back from the conference, I uh, just grabbed uh, the, uh, the group name Operational Excellence. Hmm. And, uh, and I didn't really pay too much attention to it. I just approved people to join. And, and it got to 5,000 people and then 10,000 people. I'm thinking, who the heck are these 10,000 people? So I, I started paying attention. And what I discovered was that the challenges um, people and companies face around the world are the same, identical. But how they approach uh, those challenges is very, very local. So, for instance, um, you know, a person from South Africa having supply chains uh, stretched far, uh, you know, they have a tendency to fix things with, uh, you know, duct tape and WD-40. And a German, on the other hand, will... Uh, face a problem, and they will engineer a solution that 10,000 years from now, an architect will discover and it'll still be working. And Americans are sort of like in between. They, you know, they don't think things all the way through. They're very iterative. Um, so, I, you know, this this is not good or bad, just the way it is. And I think that's one of the benefits of a, or uh, advantages of an American company is that we have all these eyes on from different perspectives, different vignettes. So, you know, operational excellence. You know, what the heck is operational? And 
a lot of my friends and a lot of my uh, uh, colleagues are uh, military. You know, probably a good 50% of them uh, were in the military or are in the military. And uh, I, I have a, a lot of friends in particular that are uh, Navy and Marine aviators. Uh, and they all go by their call signs, of course, you know, and, and call signs are not uh, assigned. Uh, you don't get to choose, I should say, you don't get to choose your own call sign. Like nobody says, I'm going to be Maverick, right? Uh, you usually get your call sign based on some goofy thing that you did. And so um, a buddy of mine, uh, Boom, uh, is you know, telling me that his carrier group has been activated, made, been made uh, operational. And he said the word operational, it's like, Whoa, because I'm trying to figure out what operational excellence is. He said, I said, what does operational mean? What does it mean that the Navy uh, has you know, determined that the aircraft uh, carrier group is, is operational? And he said to me that uh, it means that the, in the Navy's eyes, the carrier, all of its apparatus, all of its support uh, uh, apparatus, you know, ships and personnel are prepared to engage for the, in, in the purpose for which they're intended. It's like, ah, operational is a condition. It's not a thing. And that's the difference between operations, which are things, which are you know, like usually end-to-end or linear in, in, uh, in nature, and operational is collection. So uh, that's really what set me on, uh, on my trajectory, my path for exploring uh, the field of you know, soon-to-be operational excellence, at least in my mind. Uh, you know, it's a it's the notion that uh, an organization uh, is supposed to work best as an organization, not just optimized processes. The processes uh, assembled and in and organized into systems and systems into the organization. Okay, and that that is the perspective I would have approached operational excellence uh, from before reading your book. Uh, that that from the operations side, because I'm an operations management guy, right? So, you know, iterating that process and getting the people on board and the values and whatnot, and they're out there and they're thundering into the situation and really helping, you know, resolving it quickly and, and using resources effectively. That is not operational excellence according to your definition, right? That's right. The output right. of it. So, right. yeah. So let's define state of readiness then, which is obviously related to that. Well, a state of readiness, um, you know, and it's, you know, we're going through some challenging times as a, as a, as a, as a globe now, as a, as a world now with, uh, you know, COVID-19, uh, you know, popping up all over the place and wreaking havoc with the supply chain, but state of readiness is about uh, how an organization is prepared for the unexpected. Now we all train for the you know for the expected, um, but what happens when the unexpected occurs? You know how are we able to um, uh, react effectively and efficiently to that? I, I would even say decisively. So, you know, to me, operational excellence and being in a state of readiness. Um, the first thing that we have to understand is that our competition is not our competition. Okay, it's kind of counterintuitive. Our competition, our enemy of the 21st century company is time. Okay, think about that. Time is the enemy. Okay, so I, I would propose then that the company or the individual or the government or the country that could see further beyond the horizon, you know, can recognize opportunities and threats sooner, can devise and deploy decisive responses faster, 
is going to have the competitive advantage. And that, of course, means that they have to uh, know the, the condition of their resources, not just that they're at the ready, but that they're, they're even available, okay? Because you might you know, need a talent or a resource, and you might have it, but it's otherwise occupied. Now we have to make decisions. You know, do we reallocate that? Do we go without? Do we find a, a workaround? You know, so mm -hmm. it's really, um, you know, how fast can an organization uh, recognize and, and respond to circumstances as they change dynamically? Okay. So again, a little different than what we might have thought. It's, uh, it's, it's not, it's a state of being again in a condition that is a continuous thing. It is mm -hmm. not, uh, we're done. Okay, we can go home right, now. Right. We've achieved a state of readiness. All yeah. right. One thing that I noticed early on in the book was uh, I had a reaction to how you were talking about operations. Uh, it, operations is generally seen as a tactical thing, but you were talking about it like it was strategic. Um, later on, uh, I, I saw it, if anybody gets the book on page 257, you really go into this. Uh, looking at where you are as an OPEX pro, strategic, tactical, or logistics and that. So it, it, how strategic can operations be in your mind? It could be very, I mean, if you think about an organization, you know, you think about the C-suite. To me, there's only three capital C's and the rest of them are small C's. The capital C's are the CEO, the CFO, and the COO. Okay, so if you think about the CEO, that person's the chief sales rep for the company. That's the person that's setting a vision that is uh, saying that in three or five years time, uh, I promise that my company is going to be, or our company is going to be at such and such a stage or at such and such a place in the market. Um, the COO makes those dreams a reality. And the CFO maintains the financial bubble in which this, uh, these, these uh, uh, endeavors can, can operate. Uh, so if you think about the, it in uh, those terms, the COO, you know, operations, is what's going to drive, um, you know, uh, and realize ultimately those visions, those aspirations of the company. Uh, so uh, at, at, from, from that perspective, uh, operations is very strategic. We're looking at the macro level. Now, as we drill down, Okay, as we drill down, we look at the macro level, we know that you know, we have to assemble and organize our supply chains, and we have to uh, identify you know, the, the product design and engineering, and the, the, uh, you know, the production process, and you know, quality, and you know, the marketplace. You know, we want to make sure, of course, that whatever it is that we're making, whether it's a product or service, is something that people want to buy at a price they can afford. Uh, so you know, at, this, at that level, uh, operations is very strategic. And then we start drilling down into, you know, uh, it as a tactical, okay, how are we going to do these? How are we going to organize all of these things that, you know, so that they work harmoniously and, and cross support one another. And then of course there's, you know, uh, ultimately the logistical, and this is the nuts and bolts. You know, I mean, this is just the, the granular uh, 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 aspects of how we're going to get from here to there. Okay. So I, I hope people pick up your book, uh, State of Readiness. <laughs> Here it is again <laughs> in the lovely blue colors, because it's going to change your mind as a leader about what operations and operational excellence can be. Uh, one thing that you bring up is the idea of a change agent having no past with the organization. There's an example, I hope I'm pronouncing this name right, Lou Getzner at IBM came in from outside. 
um, and was able to make changes because he wasn't invested in the way we do things around here. And you bring up a couple of other examples of Ford, the automotive industry, after getting the bailout, suddenly within a month making all these changes that they should have made over the previous 20 years and whatnot. So do you think that it's vital or essential for a change agent to have no history with the organization that they are making changes in? Well, it depends on what we, you know, when we talk about change. Are we talking about change? Are we talking about disruption? Are we talking about transformation? Okay, so uh, in each of these cases uh, that you mentioned, Lou Gerstner at the IBM, uh, you know, he came from Nabisco. And uh, IBM at the time had a long tradition of, of hiring and promoting within. And uh, Lou Gerstner was uh, brought in because uh, IBM was very sick as a company. It was in dire straits, in fact. Uh, and you know, in, in this, in the board's case of IBM, they hired this external outside because there was no allegiances. You know, you know, Lou didn't have to worry about his kids not being able to play with their friends anymore, or you know, being shunned at the uh, at the country club because he had no friends at IBM. You know, he had none of this uh, personal attachment. He had him. You know, he was hired to 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 accomplish a mission, and he was given carte blanche in order to accomplish that. So. You know, what I talk about is uh, credible and non-credible disruptors. And most um, changes occur from what I'll call non-credible disruptors. And a non-credible disruptor is something that does not have truly destructive power. Okay, so what does that mean? You know, no, no CEO gets up in the, you know, in the morning and says, you know what, I'm going to transform my company today. I'm going to take whatever it was and I'm going to make it into whatever it's going to be. It's almost always the result of some external influence that is motivating that person to embark on that transformational change. Uh, so, uh, for instance, I, I use the uh, uh, example of General Motors in my uh, in my book, and uh, you know, General Motors, you know, it was a forty-year train wreck. Everybody knew it was a sick company. You know, they're you know, from the '60s at the peak of its you know uh, market uh, prowess. Uh, you know, they saw their quality go down, their unit price go up, and losing market share. Uh, and everybody knew it had to be done. Now, there's a you know litany of things. They had competing product lines. You know, what's the difference really between a you know a, a Chevy and a Buick and a Pontiac and a Saturn and a you know Cadillac and you know however many other uh, models that they had. Uh, and along comes one ex, uh, one finan global financial economic crisis, you know, the Great Recession, as it's, as it's been called. Um, and now we have this credible disruptor. This credible disruptor has, has in, in its possession truly destructive power. Doesn't necessarily mean it, could, it has to use it, but it has it. Okay. And, uh, you know, GM goes in and out of bankruptcy in, in 30 days and shed uh, by the courts of all of its 40 years worth of baggage. Um, you know, and we see this time and again, you know, Apple uh, displacing BlackBerry. You know, we could, you, know, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, we'd go to a conference and we'd say, how many people have a BlackBerry? And everybody would raise their hand and show their Blackberries off. And, uh, you know, now you go to a conference and you say, how many people have BlackBerry? And none, you know. Uh, very, very few people, if any, have it. Um, you know, even even Kodak. You know, Kodak invented the bullet that that killed them. You know, they they were a chemical company. People think they're a photography company. They're a chemical company that serviced the the um, uh, uh, photography industry. 
And along comes some guy, you know, in the, the R&D department of our uh, Kodak and says, you know, I invented something that uh, makes it so that we don't need all these chemicals anymore. You know, but, you know, unfortunately, once something's invent invented, you can't uninvent it. Mm -hmm. So these are all, all things that have truly destructive power uh, and can transform not just a company, but entire industries. Um, again, you know, not that it has to be used, but it has to exist. Mm. Okay, the Pandora's box. And JP, you got me thinking about the second and third order consequences. Um, you grew up right. in, in an IBM town or maybe the IBM town, right? Yeah. Um, the, the and I didn't even think about that. I didn't even think about that, about the kids playing with each other because their parents are executives at the company. Yeah. And, uh, and the fallout of uh, this faction versus that. So I'm going to look over. I've got notes on the other screen, as I always do. Um, and I want to make sure I cover these things. So I've noticed something in your book. You are very good at dispelling myths. And I, I love that kind of thing where you drill down into, wait, what's the reality here? Because there are a couple of phrases that I, I believe in. One is most facts are just opinions. So people walk around and they dole out these facts and uh, they're not really facts. And yet we, we act based on what we believe to be true. And so you can checkmate yourself or you can orient yourself in a certain direction and, and take off that way because of what you believe to be true, but it's actually just an opinion. And the second comes from uh, a copywriter named Dan Kennedy. And I've been a copywriter for over 25 years and been interviewed by Glazer Kennedy. And that, he had a sign uh, in behind him when he'd go and present that says, but Dan, my business is different. Um, no, it's not. <laughs> business is not different. You pointed it out at the beginning, right? Where you said no. all around the world, businesses all that have these same problems. So you have a couple of examples that popped up from in the book, um, Six Sigma, right? Why six? Why not seven or four or something like that? And also um, a, an idea that somebody had said, uh, offered the opinion of you need 200 data points to make a decision based upon. Right? So right. I, I'm curious in your experience, how commonplace has this been in organizations that you've worked on and what kind of results does this kind of uh, mushy thinking lead to? Well, you know, it's, you know, there's, there's a lot in those questions um, <laughs> that you just asked. So I'm going to try to, um, uh, unpack uh, de, yeah unpack it de-evolve it a little bit and into some of the finer um, uh, points uh, the data okay you know people want to make database decisions but I'm going to ask you a question I, I you know this is uh, an unprepped question this is you know turning the tables on the interviewer of course but I'm going to ask you a question <clears throat> how much data do you have to collect and analyze in order to absolutely guarantee with certainty an outcome? Well, we're a data science company, so we've got the regression analysis down pat and all that, right? And there is statistical yeah. relevancy. I took three years of it, but I can't really yeah. point to a specific number and it's never the okay. same, right? So a lot of it is just enough. So Which is some enough. qualitative that, you know, thing, that's, right? That's a, that's, a great, that's a great answer, enough. Yeah. Because you know what? We are gonna make our decisions when our level of confidence exceeds our level of fear. Yep. Okay. So uh, say you and I have never worked on a project before. Heck, we never even met before. We didn't talk before today. Um, and if we were to ever work on a project together, that first project is going to go slow hmm. because I'm going to be sizing you up and you're going to be sizing me up. Okay. What are each of us able to do and what are we not able to do? What are our strengths and weaknesses? Um, you know, we don't trust each other. 
not in, a, in a, not with the, the idea of nefarious intent. Mm -hmm. Okay, but we don't trust what we don't know. All right. So fast forward five projects. You know, they've been wildly successful. You come to me or I come to you with an idea. We jawbone over uh, lunch or dinner. Uh, and then we say, yeah, let's try that. You know, we've compressed hmm. that decision-making mm -hmm. time. Okay. Hmm. So when people are talking about, you know, how much data points, you know, whether it's two, 2,000, 200,000, who cares? I mean, it's all going to come down to we're going to make that decision when we feel comfortable in making that decision. Right. Okay. So, uh, you know, and there's of course things that we could do to reinforce it, you know, uh, you know, in the space business, you know, they they have all sorts of crazy metallurgists that are always testing, you know, uh, uh, uh materials for stress points and, and fractures and all things, uh, you know, that cause things to go in a suboptimal way, uh, <laughs> say it that way. Uh, but you know, at the end of the day, when you say, yeah, I'm, absolutely confident this is going to work right we don't mm -hmm. absolutely know with certainty we have a level of confidence and right. you know that level of confidence um uh is uh, what causes us to make that decision you know could you imagine uh you know toyota's and everybody in the automotive industry is always talking about striving for perfection i would give you a a, a proposition uh, postulate, if you will, I think that's the right word, that if Toyota or any auto manufacturer ever made the perfect car, it was perfect in every way, either one, uh, nobody would buy it because it wouldn't satisfy everybody, or two, nobody would buy it because they couldn't afford it. Mm -hmm. People can't afford perfection. So every day we're making trade-offs, and, mm -hmm. and those trade-offs ultimately are, are economic in nature. Hmm. I, I love so, what you say about speed and trust uh, and, and making decisions in that. It's true in sales as well. Trust speeds up uh, buying decisions. Yeah. Well, you think about, you know, uh, when a new CEO is appointed um, to a company, you know, and, and people, you know, talk about cronyism. Oh, he's bringing all of his old cronies with him, you know, and, and or her, as the case might be. Um, that's actually uh, not true. He's not bringing them over because he likes them. He brings them over because he knows what they're capable of doing. Mm -hmm. So say I'm a new CEO. Uh, I've just inked on that paper, uh, on my contract with the board of directors. And I've promised the board of directors that I'm going to accomplish something in three or five years time. And the board thinks that I'm the one that can deliver that person, uh, that, mm -hmm. th that uh, out outcome in three or five years. Well, I could go back and I could look at the, the COO and the CFO and I could, you know, squander six months trying to figure out what they can or cannot do. Or I could just hire the people I've worked with in the past and I know what they can or cannot do. And I have implicit trust with them. Otherwise I wouldn't ask them in the first place. And I'm able to accelerate the achievement of my vision. So, you know, these people, cronyism is oftentimes um, uh, misunderstood. It's about hmm. speed. It's not about, I want to hire and work with my buddies because we all go out to the same golf courses together. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So um, you talk in the book about um, Marines, Army, and police in terms of yeah. uh, execution and whatnot. And uh, let's talk a little bit about that as um, what, what you mean by that and how that could be used, that, that thinking um, by executives. Well, you know, the, the 
the um, there's a saying in the Marines uh, that they go with the 70% solution. You know, uh, what they do is they, you know, they, they have an objective. They have, they want to accomplish something. And when they have a plan that's got a 70% chance of success, then they execute and they make up the rest of it as they go along. Because there's no such thing as a perfect plan. And I think it was Dwight Eisenhower that said that the planning is nothing. Planning is, uh, uh, plans are nothing. Planning is everything. And even Mike Tyson says everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the idea of, you know, uh, going forward when the plan is imperfect uh, or at least imperfectly thought through, you know, not completely, I should say not completely thought through, means that you're relying on, you know, your training and your capabilities, your understanding of one another and what you can and cannot do to make up the other 30% as you go along. Um, because once you get there, you're not going to know really what you have until the, you know you make that first contact. And the, the same with you know uh, police and firefighters. You know they don't know what the situation is going to be when they get there. You know there's no two fires that are the same. You know there's no two traffic stops that are that are the same. Okay. And so you know when they go and engage um, uh, these uh, fluid situations. They have to rely upon their training and make these assessments in real time and make these decisions in real time based on, you know, what they know about, you know, what they are, they can, cannot do, what their colleagues can and cannot do, uh, what their apparatus can and cannot do um, versus or is uh, contrasted against the situation that, uh, that they're faced with. The, the, the fallacy, though, the, the logical fallacy here. Uh, as it correlates to business, is that firefighters and police and Marines, they train 98% of the time right. and they actually execute, you know, the, the purpose for which they're intended 2% of the time. Businesses right. can't afford that. You know, you're not, you're not going to see anybody in business training 98% of the time and producing 2% of the time. It just doesn't happen. But there is a correlation there that the more you train, the more you build your skill sets, um, the better prepared you're going to be and the more capable you're going to be at your job. Okay. And also, uh, you, you point out that each, like the type of organization that you are might not play well with one of the others, right? The, the Marines will work with the Army okay and the Army with the police, but the Marines and the police probably won't mix very well. Well, I mean, that, that really comes down to a bit of culture, you know, um, you know, and I don't know, I don't know if I actually say that, um, but, you know, every time you have different organizations, you're going to have different ways of doing things and you're going to have to deal with the personalities. Um, you know, and, and the challenge is like, I, I was recently speaking with one company here in Germany um, and for the last five years, they've acquired 50 companies a year. Hmm. Okay. Now that's a monumental uh, acquisition rate. And before those companies were acquired, each one of them had their own personalities, their own way of doing things. And, you know, now uh, they have to learn how to wear the team colors of a different team, you know, and, and how do we do that? You know, how is that done? Um, you know, without uh, upsetting the apple cart, you know, very, very challenging, you know, to, to um, acquire and integrate a company uh, at the personality level, at the cultural level. You know, even, even if the, you know, the, there was a joke years ago, I, I'm sure that you remember when um, 
when uh, Daimler uh, bought Chrysler hmm. and uh, you know, everybody said it was, or at least the, you know, folks at uh, Daimler and Chrysler said it was a marriage of equals. Um, well, the joke here in Stuttgart was that, um, you know, the company name might be uh, Daimler Benz, but in German, the Chrysler is silent. <laughs> Sorry, not Daimler Benz, yeah. Daimler Chrysler, but uh, it, you know, in German, the Chrysler is silent. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, what is the most vulnerable stage in, in achieving operational excellence? What's a big symptom of a problem that, that people could see? Um, I see the biggest challenge is the first step. Okay, mm. This is the single big, biggest challenge. Um, <clears throat> people, I, there's a chapter in my book uh, called Lessons from Mount Stupid. Yeah. And, you know, uh, and it's one of my more fun uh, chapters. I enjoyed writing it, and I actually enjoy giving that as, as one of my talks, that, that particular chapter. Because the premise is that we don't know what we don't know. Okay, think about COVID-19 right now. People are all, you know, uh, Monday morning quarterbacking uh, the decisions being made because decisions being made are the first times those decisions have ever been made. All right. And so, you know, what's happening is, uh, you know, we're making, uh, it's a wicked problem. A wicked problem has so many variables and aspects that you you really can't get a grasp of it all. You can only make a, a decision and then, you know, make your next decision from wherever that first decision uh, put you. Um, but in an OPEX program, what people don't uh, understand is that its success or failure is going to uh, lay uh, in the very first steps of its design. Okay. So um, what's, it, uh, I, there's an exercise I use uh, in, in one of my workshops and uh, I, I hand out um, blank pieces of paper that are printed to look like a newspaper. Okay, so it's got columns and headlines and stuff like that. Uh, And I instruct the people, I say, if your program was wildly successful, so wildly successful that the local newspaper ran an extra story, extra edition, just for that, that, the success uh, of your program, what would the headlines read? What would some of the stories be? Hmm. All right. Now, it's amazing how many people... um, actually uh, don't have a commonality there. You know, their vision of success is different from another person's mm-hmm. vision of success. Okay. And right. if people have multiple visions of success, there's no alignment right. by default. I mean, by default, you can't have alignment. So what I uh, try to get people to do um, uh, is what are the success factors for you? You know, uh, you're not Toyota. You'll never be Toyota. Okay, you're not General Electric, you'll never be GE or Honeywell or anybody else. You are who you are, all right? Your business factors, your circumstances are different from theirs. You know, what is going to be success for you? Mm-hmm. And then we have to work towards that success. Okay, and we see this in sales as well. You, you want to get the C-suite and, and other folks in the room and ask them, go around the room and ask them, right, what's what's most important about this from from your seat and you will get different answers just like that i'm fascinated by i think we're going to dig into this in a second um that there is a sale that needs to be made here because uh you've seen this question of 
how do people actually generate change, right? How do you generate change? And, and uh, you've asked that question and not gotten good answers from supposed CEOs and whatnot who are at conferences. This is Jason Gannigan from Cold Star Tech, and I'm excited to share with you a new offer from Cold Star that we are bringing out to help both space founders and venture capitalists who fund space companies. And it's on two levels. The lower level is a VC who is looking at possibly funding a space company, but they just don't get it, right? And a lot of tech founders want to come out and create some sort of technical capability, but they do not understand business. And so you'll look and you'll go, where's the customer here? Where's the business model? And they'll go, huh? But I want to make rockets or something, right? And, and it's really cool. Well, that, as we know from the dot-com era, is not a viable business model. And so you bring us in. We've got great technical expertise on the space side. Folks who have done this sort of assessment before, like our technical engineering advisor, Dr. Rick Fleeter, myself in the process engineering field, plenty of other people with brains to look at this problem so that you don't have to blow your brains out trying to figure out how to make this work. And on the company side, it's a benefit for them because we will show them the roadmap to how you're going to get funded, how, how you will want to fund them, what changes to make to get VCs excited about putting money in. And so that's good for you. Right? The second level is at a, a deeper and higher level at the same time. It is for venture capitalists who have uh, given a seed round to a company a space company. And that has gone on for a little while, six months, a year, something like that. And it is time as uh, COVID has made it to double down or get out. Those are pretty much the choices, right? It's time to invest further in a thing we already know, which seems to be the direction VCs are going in right now. Uh, they don't seem to want to look at new things uh, or, or stop, just kill the project. And so the good news is in that situation, there's a lot more going on. There's more meat for Cold Star experts to get in and, and analyze, right? You're going to have processes in place, whether they know it or not. We'll be able to flowchart those and, and maybe accurately document them for the first time so we can get some kind of value chain going in the organization. We'll be able to test whether the leadership is the right group of people or whether you're missing something, the strategic direction, the business model, all this stuff. So, if this sounds interesting to you, reach out to us. You can email me at jason at coldstartech.com or just connect with me and message me on LinkedIn. That's probably the best way to do it. And uh, I am excited to talk to you. The, the kind of transformation that we're able to offer here is beyond anything you'll see out there. And as a VC, this will save you so much time and energy, right? Like if you're a VC and you've got 100 companies to look at, you've got three days a year <laughs> to, to look at each one maybe, right? That's not really good enough, is it? Wouldn't it be better to have uh, experienced, expert space, people who understand space, right? Look at this investment and tell you, here's a grade, right? Here are several grade areas. Is this thing ready to pour gasoline on the fire? Or is it just going to go up in smoke? This is Jason Kanig from Cold Star Tech. Let's get back to the interview. You talk about packaging communications for delivery. That's a phrase that I've seen in there. I give a four and a half page list of logical fallacies, which I found um, fascinating and amusing. So talk about the importance of this and, and why it's necessary and yet not stressed enough out there in the real world. Um, because we want to stay away from avoiding maybe this fight, flight, or fright response. You know, it. it uh, this is, I'm going to give you a, a story that yeah. actually occurred on LinkedIn here. Some person, um, 
uh, you know, a group member, the Apex group, uh, posted a, a question, what's the difference between Lean and Six Sigma? And of course, there's a LinkedIn comment, okay? So this is not like a dissertation. This is not 400 page book on state of readiness. This is like, what's the difference between Lean and Six Sigma? So I, my simple response was, generally speaking, Lean is about velocity and Six Sigma is about the quality of the process. All right, so velocity, you know, how do you get through something through the process as fast and frictionless as possible? And, you know, uh, with the quality of the process, I, I remember um, a commercial from Bank of America, this is, you know, a couple of decades ago, maybe 30 years ago. President of Bank of America comes out and says, last year, Bank of America processed over 3 billion checks accurately. And then he stops himself immediately, reverses. He says, actually, last year, Bank of America processed one check accurately and then repeated the process over 3 billion times. <laughs> okay. So this is, you know, that was my simple response. And really the simpler wasn't injecting Bank of America. It was just about lean being about velocity and Six Sigma being about the quality of the process. And wouldn't you know, um, a couple of people immediately jump on it and say, are you telling me that lean isn't about quality? Hmm. And it's like, I didn't say any of the sort. You know, they didn't, I didn't say anything of the sort. Well, you implied it. And it's like, you know, an omission is not an implication. <laughs> you know, it, this is a simple comment to, uh, uh, you know, somebody's query and this is my offering. And, uh, and it's sort of like me asking you, what's your favorite, what's your favorite fruit? <laughs> Probably mangoes. Jason. Yeah. Okay, mangoes. Why do you hate Why do you hate bananas? Exactly. You didn't say bananas. So, yeah. Yeah. You didn't say. You know. What do you have? You. you, you so you love uh, mangoes, but why do you hate bananas? Yeah. Now, of course, the logical fallacy is that you didn't say you didn't hate bananas. Mm -hmm. You just said you liked this. Just because you like that doesn't mean you dislike something else. Right. You know? And, uh, you know, we have to guard ourselves in our conversations to not jump or extrapolate some conclusion that doesn't exist. You know, mm -hmm. uh, and in this particular case, um, I call these kind of folks the Taliban lean. All right. Uh, the, the challenge is that whenever you uh, question dogma, their in initial uh, Re uh, reaction is that you are a heretic. Hmm. Okay? And I think it's very dangerous for, um, for people to take these you know, approaches, these disciplines, and treat them like a religion. Now, I'll give you, you know, to Shingo, you know, for instance, Shingo's very bright guy, very brilliant guy. Okay. Um, you know, there's a whole field of study uh, around, uh, you know, his works. Okay, highly, I personally highly respect them. Um, but Shingo accumulated a body of knowledge over his lifetime. Okay, and we pass that baton on to others to carry on the work. He didn't expect them to carry on his work. He ex expected them to build off of his work. The body of knowledge didn't die. Its evolution didn't die with him. It lives on. It's supposed to, you know, it, it, we did, I, I believe that we disrespect these, these sages by not building off of what they gave us. You know, because at the end of the day, they might have taught us everything we know. They didn't teach us everything they know. Hmm. 
I'm sure you're going to get a lot of feedback on that. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, I'm reminded of a, um, a long lecture on academic writing and making it effective that, uh, that I watched where the, the guy instructing talked about how knowledge and what is accepted as doctrine um, is a porous thing. Things come in and things fall out of it according to fashion or, or what is true or not true at the moment. And that, that's what yeah, that yeah. made me think of. And, and just to make this perfectly clear, I don't believe I am the be all end all of operational excellence. I don't believe for a second that my definition of operational excellence should be the universal truth. I mean, you know, these are, are you know, laws of man. Okay, we made this stuff up. Right. Uh, these are not like laws of nature, like gravity or the speed of light or things of that nature, you know, things that are are absolute in, in, in physics. Um, so I fully expect and I would hope that, you know, some people would take what I've uh, shared or my thoughts and taken it and personalized it and taken it in their own direction. Um, I wouldn't be dissatisfied at all. I'd be honored. Huh. Well, let's let's dig into you have an OPEX ERM process and uh, let's I've learned a number of traditional problem solving approaches. This one's different from that. Um, what does it look like? Uh, well, OPEX ERM, you know, uh, operational excellence enterprise readiness model is basically what OPEX ERM means. And it's a way of um, constructing a program and deploying a, a program uh, to achieve some outcome that's uh, defined up front. You know, you know, I don't, you know, we could go into the, to the forensics and I, I don't think the, I, I, you know, your audience would gloss their eyes over, of course, but, you know, some more of the forensics are <laughs> I'd be book. interested. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, you know, the whole idea is that, uh, it, and it all starts with what does success look like? Okay, everybody's got to understand and agree to what success looks like. And then we have to build our program and our efforts for that success. So, you know, we have to build awareness uh, within the organization uh, of uh, what it is that we want to achieve. We want to make sure that the C-suite, all the senior execs agree with that outcome because we want to work on what's important. We don't want to work on what's not important. And what's important is what's important to them. You know, this is, this is another thing that you know, people get kind of uh, sidetracked on. We always think about the customer. Well, who's the customer? Is the customer the person that you know, um, uh, you know, buys your product, or is the person uh, the, the customer the person you report to? You know, so you know, and, and we we're going to have to hope uh, and pray that the C-suite uh, has genuine uh, interest in satisfying their customers. Let's assume that's the case, because you know, let's face it, the C-suite uh, is not interested in satisfying the customers. The OpEx CI team is not going to help. Uh, they're not going to be successful anyway, right? I mean, it's just, it's just not possible. Right. So let's assume for a second that the C-suite, their main mission is to make uh, uh, out, outrageously wonderful products and services for their customers. Now, as, as CI OpEx people, we have to try to figure out how to achieve or accelerate or be the accelerant of the achievement of that company vision. So that means that everybody's got to know what that is up front. And everybody's got to agree to it in unmistakable terms. Okay, I'll give you an example of what I mean by unmistakable. I uh, uh, was at a client site, and I asked, you know, during my workshop, what does the company want to be? And uh, you know, it goes back to that, you know, the vision of the future. 
and after a long pause, because it's one of those questions I ask and then I don't say another word until somebody volunteers. And eventually somebody did and they said, we want to be the number one e-commerce fashion provider in all of Europe. And I said, awesome. What does number one mean? Hmm. Okay. Is it number one in revenue, market share, profitability, customer satisfaction? What does number one mean? Because if you don't know that, mm -hmm. you can't prioritize your efforts. So we need to know that company vision in absolute terms. You know, and so when the CEO comes out and says, we want to be the number one, whatever, um, we have to ask the CEO, well, the number one in what? Okay, what do we have to be number one at? Because um, if we're not working on what's important, we're going we're gonna to be a nice to have, not a need to have. And, uh, you know, we will never be at the strategic table. We'll always be at the, the logistical, probably the logistical table. Those three levels that we were talking about. And you right. pointed out that when senior management stops contributing or supporting continuous improvement or operational excellence efforts, um, that's the beginning of the end right there. Absolutely it's correct. Absolutely good. correct. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I talk about... Um, you know, how to, how to communicate with the C-suite. Mm. Uh, and uh, there's another uh, chapter in one of my talks that I give. I, I talk about CEOs and their sausages. Right. And, and I share that, you know, uh, CEOs love their sausages. And we have to learn to love the sausages as much as they do. Mm. And, you know, they love the crispiness of the roll and, you know, the spice in the meat and, and the zest of the mustard. But they don't want to see it being made and they don't care to know what goes in it, all right? So when we're talking to the CEO about how we can help them, when I say the CEO, I mean that whole C-suite, but I'm mm -hmm. just abbreviating, okay, to, to, and, and picking on the CEO. But when we're talking to the CEO, we have to speak in their terms. We don't expect them to speak in our terms and aren't using our syntax. So we shouldn't be talking to them about Kaizen or Gemba or all these other Japanese things or value stream mapping, which is an American thing or an English thing. Um, you know, we have to talk to them, unless, of course, they understand that. If they understand it, then use it. But, you know, we have like, you know, 30 seconds to impress these people because they have hundreds of decisions they have to make today. And if they have to start thinking about what it is that you're saying not you, and you're not just saying it, then they're moving on to the next thing. So we really need to, to spend the time to understand their language and to package what it is that we're selling, our, mm -hmm. you know, our CI OpEx tool set and methodologies and approach and discipline. We have to package that in a form that they can understand mm -hmm. easily. In fact, um, when I was writing my book, I took great pains uh, at doing this. I knew that my audience was international. And that, um, you know, uh, English would probably be the second language or third language for many of the, the readers. So I, I purposely made the book an easy read or tried to make it an easy read without a lot of technical mumbo jumbo. I mean, just no MBA words, just something that somebody, anybody could uh, pick up and, and read through. Mm -hmm. Even me, <laughs> even you, <laughs> right? right. And I, have, I have struggled with that. Um, explaining the operational excellence stuff to the C-suite thing. You know, I just sort of expected that they would know a lot of it, but um, it just ain't the case, so. Yeah, you really yeah, have to take yeah. the time to, to set up that lighthouse. You know, everybody's mm -hmm. gotta know 
know. And getting back to the OPEX uh, ERM, just to, yeah. to wrap that up. Yeah, let's talk about that process. Yeah. You really have to spend that time up front to define that success. And then after, you've just, every, after everybody's agreeing to that success, then uh, you have to start doing what I'm going to call a, a, an assessment, an internal assessment. You know, where are we at? And this is nothing that's, uh, this is critically important. And it's too often glossed over. Um, you know, I, I ask people, where are, you, where are they? You know, uh, what assets and what, you know, what's the state of readiness of these assets? Uh, you know, are they trained? Are they not? And everybody say, yeah, we're all set. We're all ready to go. And I'm like, okay, well, show me the document that says that this is all set. And it's like, well, it doesn't exist, but we're all, we know we're ready, all right? And immediately, I know this is this is uh, we're on uh, on a perilous path, uh, and uh, we really have to take that time to do a, a detailed self-assessment or assessment of mm -hmm. where a company is. And I would probably suggest that um, they don't do a self-assessment mm -hmm. because they don't know what they don't know. Yep. You know, huh. you know, con consultants aren't necessarily particularly bright. Um, you know, they just don't know not to ask the question. Mm -hmm. you know, I talked they, about this in my make space video video this morning. So you've already did you? affected me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Yeah. But, and yeah. I've seen a lot of this stuff too. The, the outside eyes are using them in, in my own organization. We'll see yeah, stuff yeah. that's obvious to somebody who is not inundated with everything every day. That yeah, you're, yeah. That you're involved in. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, a, a simple example of that is just your morning commute. I mean, think mm -hmm. about your average morning commute. You get into the car. You know, and you, you somehow by some miracle end up at work. But I, if I asked you to detail that trip, you wouldn't be able to because mm -hmm. you're on autopilot. You've done it every day for so long uh, that uh, unless there's, you know, some, some, you know, storm or some catastrophe that, uh, that, that caused you to make a detour or something like that. If I asked you uh, your routine details, you wouldn't be able to tell me. Right. And, and I really like how you focus on getting like measurements and, and target criteria for success really nailed down because that stuff is, is surprisingly mushy in people's yeah. minds, including my own. I am not exempt from anything that we've talked about here. Despite being an operations management guy, I'm just as goofy and um, occasionally incompetent as everybody else. And, uh, and so to, to really narrow down and, and, and sharpen up these targets, well, it's not it, as easy it, as you might think. It, it, it's really not. And I think it's also important to make sure that we're setting waypoints. Mm. Okay. Way, mm -hmm. Waypoints measure incremental progress. Okay. So, you know, where are we going to be in three months, six months, uh, a year's time? And we're going to have to reassess uh, where we are uh, all along that route. Okay. Because things, mm. The unexpected is going to happen. You know, that's just the way it's going to be. Um, so when the unexpected happens, it's not that it happened. It's what do we do about it? Hmm. You know, now that it did happen, how is it going to, you know, uh, influence our, our downstream uh, expectations? I think the real uh, challenge is that if you say that in three years time, our OPEX program is going to generate this and you're not measuring it all the way there, uh, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Right. Which also goes back to culture. Um, the culture ha you have to have a culture where, guess what? If you if something went wrong, uh, just talk about it. 
Okay. Mm -hmm. Air it out as quickly as possible so people can react. If you try to hide it, if you try to, you know, do the, the gambler's fallacy of just doubling down, doubling down, doubling down and hoping that, you know, the black hits, um, you're, you're going to be, uh, uh, you're going to be, uh, you're going to face doom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's going to be, you know, there's going to be a doomsday there. Right. Well, JP, uh, you, you obviously you have the book. People can go on Amazon and get this thing state of readiness. Uh, I highly recommend it. That's, um, so the top two or three business books I've read this year, which is um, not a light praise <laughs> that I'm giving. Uh, I, as an operations management guy, I enjoyed it. Uh, somebody who is, I mean, I got my operations management education in 94 to 96. So I've been in the field a long time. And this book, you taught me some things or gave me different perspectives that I didn't have. Um, so people can go to Amazon and get that. Uh, if they want to find out more about you, uh, they can listen to your podcast. You've got two of them. State of Readiness, same title as the book and the Outliers Inn, which is the one that I've seen a lot more posting for, by the way. Um, that's, that's my feedback. And you've got the company, the consulting company, Zonatech. Where can people go to learn more and, and connect with you? Well, the easiest way is, uh, is on LinkedIn, okay? You know, Joseph Paris on LinkedIn. Uh, you'll recognize me. I usually wear a, a cowboy hat. I've got my cowboy hat picture. Uh, uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, you, you know, if you want to learn more uh, about me, you can take a look at zonatech.com, X-O-N-I-T-E-K.com. Um, the Outliers Inn, by the way, is about three years older than Stated Readiness. So that's why you see a lot more episodes there. And it's more of a, uh, we'll call it a, um, uh, you know, a backyard barbecue for a, <laughs> a, a, a podcast, just a little bit lighthearted uh, on it. But easiest way is just to uh, find me on, on LinkedIn and LinkedIn. Right on. Okay, Joseph Paris, thanks for being here today. Hey, thanks for having me, Jason. It was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. Uh, and all the best to, to you and your endeavors. Thank you. This is Jason Canningham from Cold Star Tech. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you do want to get email notifications of upcoming episodes or episodes that have just been released and maybe a little news sprinkled in here and there, you can sign up for email notifications at coldstartech.com slash MSB. That's short for Make Space Boring. That's another little show that I do. It's uh, once, twice, three times a week, something like that. Anytime there's news or uh, an update on who I'm meeting and, and what I'm uh, studying in the space field. So you can go check that out. On the YouTube channel, I can do something that I cannot do on uh, Anchor for the audio only uh, side of things. The YouTube channel allows me to have playlists. And so you might want to go to the channel, the Cold Star Tech channel, and check out those playlists because you will find, you can go down a rabbit hole basically into several areas like space law and policy, uh, small sats. And I think that's a lot easier than trying to scroll through 130 episodes or something like that, <laughs> looking for the thing that you want. So I recommend going and checking that out. And remember, if you're ready to take your space business to the next level or you're a VC looking for a deep and very valuable insight into a space company you're looking at investing in or investing further in, come and talk to us. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.